lock and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Dace Show. And greetings. Happy Monday. Welcome to the Steve Dace Show, live and on demand here on Blaze TV, radio and podcast. I am Steve Dace, Aaron McIntyre, and Todd Erzin. They are here with us as well, if you'd want to be a part of the program today. 888-900-3393 is the number. That's 888-900-3393. You can also let us know what you think about what we think via the stevedace.com inbox. Uh, Last week was the busiest week I've had in my career. When it comes to emails, I have tried to respond to as many of them as I possibly could. But we love learning and hearing your thoughts at Steve at stevedace.com. That's D-E-A-C-E. You can also try liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Speaking of Facebook, today is our Monday Town Hall. Uh, It's also the monthly Facebook Ask Me Anything edition. So we will get to those Facebook questions. I'm guessing a lot of them. Todd is going through them as we speak, and I'm guessing a lot of them are going to be of the coronavirus COVID-19 variety. So we will get to those coming up in the next hour of the show. You should know, I mean, I have spent more time on this in the last couple of weeks, including in this weekend, than, I mean, I've used... Every ounce of of contacts and information and ability I have in a way that for something other than this show, in a way I probably haven't since the Ted Cruz campaign. And that was four years ago when it ended, four years ago in May. The, the finished product of that, at least version 1.0, you are now going to find pinned to my Twitter page. And also my Facebook page right now. So facebook.com slash Steve Dace, uh, Twitter at Steve Dace Show. And there's a piece I worked on with a couple of other researchers this weekend at The Blaze to discuss this purely from what's going on in the country, purely from a public policy standpoint. I'd urge you, I mean, there's a ton of of data in there. All of it is sourced directly um, and it, it, it kind of lays out the pertinent public policy questions we need to be asking right now, which is right in line with what the president tweeted late last night. Is the cure worse than the disease? If you would like to get that piece, uh, I would urge you to go and find it right now on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Steve Dace. The top of my Twitter feed, at Steve Dace Show. Read it for yourself. Do your own research. Whether you agree with it or not, if you at least think it asks pertinent questions, please feel free to share that with uh, as many people as you possibly can. Because I think that this is the conversation that we need to be having as a country at this moment. We cannot control the pathology of the virus. We can't control that. All right, that's a separate matter that we need to leave to experts. What what we need to be able to control, though, as a self-governing people, is the knowledge that the right decisions are being made in spite of the incredible consequences that the American people are being asked to pay, the sacrifices we're being asked to make preemptively without a lot of answers and a lot of certainty when it comes to the data. So again, uh, you can get that on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Steve Dace. Uh, you can also go at Steve Dace Show on Twitter. I was on with uh, with Glenn Beck just a few minute, minute, moments ago discussing it with him as well. And with all of that now out of the way, uh, let's get to Aaron's rundown of what happened while we were away. 
What happened while we were away? Brought to you by Locking It Down. Delaware, Kentucky, Louisiana, Ohio, Philadelphia, Kansas City, St. Louis, and Athens, Clark County, and Georgia are just a few of the places that have imposed stay-at-home orders for their populaces, making it a crime to go out and about for any reason other than groceries or medicine in a bid to slow the community's spread of the Wuhan coronavirus. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's state is getting hit really hard. But it is going to be four months, six months, nine months. You look at China, once they really change the trajectory, which we have not done yet, uh, eight months, we're in that range. Last night, Senate Democrats filibustered a $1.8 trillion so-called stimulus bill that would have pumped money into businesses and households hurting during the economic crisis brought about by the coronavirus. New York Times headline after that happened, Democrats block action on a $1.8 trillion stimulus. Same New York Times story a little while later, partisan divide threatens deal on rescue bill. Learning Chinese today, today's phrase is, that's some good news speak right there. Mitch McConnell, your thoughts? So we're fiddling here. Fiddling with the emotions of the American people. Fiddling with the markets. Fiddling with our health care. The American people expect us to act tomorrow. And I want everybody to fully understand, if we aren't able to act tomorrow, it'll be because of our colleagues on the other side continuing to dicker when the country expects us to come together and address this problem. The Federal Reserve announced a plan to help the economy by essentially printing money indefinitely. Nearly 700,000 unemployment claims have been filed in 17 states since the economic downturn started a few weeks ago. President Trump tweeted last night, We cannot let the cure be worse than the problem itself. At the end of the 15-day period, we will make a decision as to which way we want to go. We are now on day eight of the 15-day flatten-the-curve effort by the White House. There have now been over 35,000 cases of the Wuhan coronavirus confirmed in the United States with 471 deaths. The Justice Department has reportedly sought emergency powers amid the coronavirus pandemic, including the ability to detain people indefinitely without trial during emergencies. That news brought ire from both sides of the aisle as both Utah Senator Mike Lee and New York Senator Chuck Schumer voiced their extreme displeasure on social media. The country of Italy has supposedly been the biggest ground zero for the global pandemic, with nearly 6,000 people dying from the disease. That may not be the whole picture, however. According to their own health department, and as reported by the UK Telegraph, quote, on re-evaluation by the National Institute of Health, only 12% of death certificates have shown a direct causality from coronavirus, while 88% of patients who have died have at least one pre-morbidity. Many had two or three, end quote. And finally, in the midst of the ongoing quarantines, nursing homes have had to get creative with their recreational activities. And that's what happened while we were away. All right. So um, I want to discuss what I what I believe is the biggest revelation that has occurred since the word coronavirus and and the and the uh, the name COVID nineteen came into our uh, into our bloodstreams into our our zeitgeist into the the air we breathe our habitat as a culture 
when this was going on in Asia, particularly in China, two, three months ago, well, it was going on well before that, but when they finally let the world in on this two, three months ago, it just wasn't on really anybody's radar, right? We barely talked about it on this show. It wasn't really in anybody's headlines. If we reacted to every time there was a plague going on in Asia, you know, where, where you know, they have live wet markets to attract ticks uh, by the legion, we wouldn't, you know, if we were attracted to every bug story, virus story out of that part of the world, we'd never talk about anything else, right? Correct. So it it it's when we started seeing the pictures and the videos and reading the stories from where that all of the West, including the United States, stood up and took attention from where? Italy. Italy. Italy is the country that that sparked, whether you think it's panic, whether you think it's, um, appropriate concern. However you would describe it, Italy is the country that that set in motion all of the events we have experienced as Americans over the last couple of weeks. And over the weekend, Italy's uh, National Institute of Health admitted that the data that it has shared, now again, I have to keep making this distinction because I keep being flooded with people that are incapable of making the distinction. This isn't about the existence of coronavirus or whether it's a hoax or people have died. We're not, we're not doubting any of that. What we're, what we're asking is whether the cure is, worth, is worse than the disease. The, the draconian measures that have been taken to, to stop this in its tracks. And over the weekend, Italy admitted to the London Daily Telegraph that essentially its data is wholly unreliable. That's, that's the data that has been used to galvanize everything that we have been asked to sacrifice, put on hold, erase, eliminate, pay for in the last couple of weeks. And I want to walk you through this story. All right. So it is impossible to underestimate Italy's role in Western nations like the United States shutting themselves down, for it is highly unlikely that we would be shut down right now if it were not for what we saw coming out of Italy. Is that a fair point? Oh, more than fair. It's crucial. And, and maybe even if you want to say less likely, highly unlikely, but at, the, at some level, it is less likely we would be shut down right now if it weren't for what we were seeing out of Italy, which brings us to our next point. All right. Remember, Italy was the focus of our media's hysteria three weeks ago. After all, we heard things like, if this could happen in Italy, what makes you think it couldn't happen here? That was the mantra, right? Italy is a modern Western European democracy, and it was supposedly burning bodies and deciding who lives and who dies because of this plague. Those stories and claims are the primary reason we are where we are today in America with coronavirus. I'm not saying those things never happened or were overblown, but that now we have an entirely different context to them. It never made sense to me. It just never did. Why a modern Western nation of 60.2 million people was brought to its knees because a few thousand more people needed an ICU bed. And I have said this many times in many formats, including right here on the blaze. We may now have our answer. Italy is simply an incompetent democracy of cosmic proportions. At the very least, it has totally cooked its books by its own admission. By admitting that anyone who essentially died the past few weeks while testing positive for COVID-19 was counted as a coronavirus death, we were all fed a very biased sample. Especially when you consider Italy says the average age of hospitalization for COVID-19 was 67 years old. 
How many 67-year-olds are free of any pre-existing conditions? Answer, not many. Not many anywhere in the world, in fact. So Italy essentially said if you had a serious staph infection, pneumonia, or were previously diagnosed with emphysema or lung cancer in a high-smoking population, or anything else that weakens immune systems and can kill you on its own, that's an important point, can kill you on its own, you were counted as having been killed from coronavirus if after the fact you tested positive for COVID-19. In other words, I've been to the hospital a million, dozens of times for emphysema. I go back now because now it's really, really bad because I've got this virus and I die. That, they counted that death as solely as a result of COVID-19. This is their own admission. Now, maybe they're lying about that too. I don't know. But this is what they admitted to the London Daily Telegraph over the weekend. Let me give you an analogy. Suppose I wanted to find out, and I'll use, uh, you know, I'm of an Italian ancestry. So suppose we wanted to find out how many Italian Americans there really were. And we took a census, okay? And we instructed the people in that census. Hey, as you go through, we gave them a genealogy kit so they could test their own genealogy. And if at any point in time, at any point in time, there is any Italian in your ancestry, could be intermarriage, so it wasn't by blood, but it was in her marriage and that marriage lasted for 10 minutes and it was annulled. It was never consummated and it was 400 years ago. If there's any, if it pops up at all, you do a keyword search at all, Italian, in your genealogy, we are going to count you as full-fledged Italian-American. Now, is that a fully accurate sample? No. No, it's, it's, it's a weighted and maybe even biased sample. Because ultimately you end up with something called confirmation bias. You were looking to see how many Italian Americans there were. You then told everybody, anybody with any Italian in your genealogy at all, count it as full-fledged Italian. And then lo and behold, you came back and your study showed there's a, there's a, we've never had this many Italian Americans before because there's no context to it. Just any time the keyword Italian showed up, you put it in your genealogy. Italy admitted to the London Daily Telegraph over the weekend. This is essentially what it did with coronavirus. If you had any other pre-existing condition, it didn't matter. No matter how terrible it was, how potentially fatal it was on its own, you were counted, if you died and tested positive for coronavirus, you were counted as having been killed by COVID-19. Let's continue. This exploded Italy's mortality rate from COVID-19 way ahead of the whole world, except for China. Now, I wouldn't advise anybody trust China's data. All right, but right now, <clears throat> officially, Italy has the highest death count in the world, higher than China. I don't believe that for a second. And I would advise you don't either. Okay, so we're not even looking at China's data. I'm not even I, in, in all the research I've done over the last couple of weeks. I've not looked. I'm, I'm not even counting China's data in anything. I'm not. Now, even with this skewed statistical sample, meaning that they overly weighted their sample, looking for Italian Americans, in, in my analogy, or they're overly weighting looking for COVID-19. So, they're, so they're, they're counting everything as it. And yet, even with that heavily weighted sample, through Friday, Italy was reporting, and I only counted Friday because Saturday was when this revelation came out. Through Friday, Italy was reporting only 0.00007, that's four zeros, 
Only 0.00007 of its population was killed by coronavirus, which is 8.6% of those who tested positive had died. A stark number, but still below the 10% number that was floated here a couple of weeks ago that made us all panic. But now, with just 12% of its deaths, that's their number, that's their number now, just 12% of their, their deaths from coronavirus being singularly the cause, meaning a singular exposure to coronavirus, you had no other pre-existing condition that should have led to your fatality, but you were singularly exposed to COVID-19, only 12% of those deaths through Friday were the case, which means 484 Italians who were otherwise healthy were actually killed by COVID-19. That means only 1.02% of those who were healthy and got the virus died. Even at that advanced age set, where the average hospitalization was 67. This is 0.00000, that's five zeros, 0.000008 of Italy's entire population. And that assumes Italy can now count, and I'm using data through Friday, as I said, because this revelation was reported on Saturday afternoon. Would we have shut our nation down if we were given this data from the beginning? We may never truly know, but any amount of common sense would at the very least make it somewhat less likely. We might have at least hesitated. We might have said, well, let's, let's, let this, let's see where we're at first before we, we, we saddle the country with minus 24% economic growth in the second quarter, according to Morgan Stanley this morning. That's their forecast for their investors. Negative 24%. Let's continue. After all, remember, there were no calls for shutting us down because of what was happening in China, the epicenter, two to three months ago. Italy, a nation of our ancestors, like my own, and a member of the European Union, being brought down to its knees by this virus, that is what galvanized our hysteria or preparation, if you prefer that description. Also, at the very least, we might have mobilized a far different response, similar to what Japan and South Korea did. Two nations with far more experience being exposed to Chinese plagues than we have. They kept mostly open societies and didn't destroy their economies while isolating the small number of sick and vulnerable. Japan has yet to see a a coronavirus spike, while South Korea is scheduled to resume even more public life like professional sporting events at the end of this month. Here's the bottom line. The economic, societal, and personal cost to each American from the panic induced by the overreaction to Italy is absolutely astronomical. Astronomical. Gentlemen, let me pause there and get your thoughts. What do you think? Well, lest anybody wonder that uh, if this is truly Machiavellian. Machiavelli being Italian, actually, so uh, people may be even connecting dots even further because of that. You don't, you don't need to start crafting conspiratorial narratives. The, the, the pattern that Steve is talking about, specifically that they rushed into and how they categorize, that, that's exactly how the world treats the flu. The, the way they... If you look at it, drum down on the flu statistics, it's it, it's the, it's the exact same way. So we we have built up, and I've used the term before, a level of mania about how we view the world, about how we view illness and disease. 
the flu isn't also it, it, it affects different people differently they're not they're not the same thing but how we categorize we have a flu statistic every year that if you drum down on it also affects people uh largely people with immune systems uh that are weakened uh, it's not necessarily always the uh, the old. It affects uh, different age groups differently. But this is why this is it's so important not to be run on pure emotion in these times when we actually have the number. This is where people talk about the people of reason and science. It's time we start using it. That is what Steve is showing you right now. And I, I'll go even further. I am absolutely certain. I was talking about this on the way in with my brother. I am absolutely certain without this hysteria from Italy. And if we did not have the level of basically emotional spiritual and psychological corrosion that's affecting this entire society right now there's no way we would have put on the brakes on this uh, we would have isolated the, the old people we would have isolated new york we would have isolated seattle and the rest of us would have looked this opportunity in the eye to truly be heroic to pu- truly put an american stamp on a crisis like we have throughout our human history but as i've said before i'm not sure we're america anymore Yeah. And you want to talk about patterns. Uh, Let's talk about this for a pattern that I'm seeing. And I'm sure everyone in our audience who's had their eyes opened, which I'm not sure how you couldn't over the last two or three weeks, um, could could see as well. We talk about and you, you rightly prefaced this at the beginning of the show, Steve where epidemiology ends and public policy begins. And I, I brought up this example um, this this morning, and, and the pattern that I'm seeing is just flawed, either flawed or incomplete data, and then flawed, flawed uh, solutions to what that data tells us at the end of that. And that whips up people into, into emotional frenzies, which is what we've seen. Now, that doesn't be, mean that this is not nothing. It's not nothing. Just like any virus, any virus outbreak like this is not nothing. It, 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 it impacts people's lives. It impacts people's livelihoods on some level. On some level, somewhere uh, people's lives are being disrupted. But here's the deal. If I, I, I brought this up a couple weeks ago. A couple weeks ago, I had a checkup with a primary care provider. My cholesterol is high. And yes, um, yeah, my cholesterol is high. I I look like an in-shape guy, but it's high. Uh, You know what my doctor told me to do? Told me to eat healthy and keep living my life. Seems like a pretty... Pretty, uh, pretty rational response. That's pretty, pretty believable, being what we know about cholesterol. You know what he did not tell me to do? He did not tell me to set myself on fire in order to reduce my cholesterol levels. That is essentially what it seems like at this point the uh, experts are, being, uh, are telling us to do, at least with the economy. Now, at the end of the day, if it is as big of a deal, if it is 10 times more deadly than the seasonal flu, which is the line that I keep hearing from Dr. Anthony Fauci, if it is that big of a deal, if this is more communicable, if this is more deadly, if this is more, uh, if this is more uh, apocalyptic exponentially, which is another term we're all hearing over and over again, than the H1N1 outbreak of 2009, if all of those things are true and then are, then our contentions about this really don't matter. And neither does anybody else because we are just completely powerless at that point to stop it. It doesn't matter. But if it doesn't matter, if it is really truly that big of a deal, then why are we not at least examining whether it's not? 
Why are we not allowed to ask questions about whether the cure is actually more deadly than the disease itself? Why are we not allowed to ask those questions? Because if it's truly, if it is truly more deadly, if the cure truly is more, if this disease really is more deadly than anything else we've seen before, then the answers to those questions, we just need to know that further than, sooner than later. Get busy, get busy dying or get busy living is essentially the end of this. But why we are not allowed to at least ask these questions, especially in light of what we just walked you through with this revelation out of Italy. I don't understand that, and neither does anybody. And I have not gotten a satisfactory answer to some of the questions that we've posed over the last week. And I don't know if, if either of you have. Of course, there's the, the thing that we keep coming back to is this is more deadly, this is more... I have not seen reliable data. Again, we don't have complete data yet, but I don't see any trends to, to suggest that this is necessarily the case yet. And so this, this line between epidemiology and public policy, that has to be stressed over and over again. I, I think you need to add some context to your challenging statements. You are married to a healthcare professional. Yes. You are married to a nurse at a hospital in the heart of, of our city. Okay, which deals with upwards of what during flu season, uh, almost a couple dozen of of, yeah. of ER cases for flu and pneumonia on a, on a high level day. Yeah. Right. This is what she does professionally. She's being trained along these lines and given the latest information. Yep. So these are conversations that you are having in your home on a regular Absolutely. basis. Yep. You're not just winging it here. You know, just cranky millennial, I don't understand this. I mean, th this is real to you. This is going on in your home. Is my wife going to come home, test, treated someone and test positive? And then what happens to us? Do we get corn? Right. You guys are dealing with this in a first person way. Yes. Most Americans are not. And and so I think that that's important to add some context to why you have so much determination in your voice. This is not theoretical or public policy, even in the McIntyre household. This is no. this is real life. And even even further context, if I may add as well, my sister-in-law, she is a nurse, a registered nurse in eastern one of the largest hospitals in eastern Washington. My brother, who she's married to, is immunocompromised. She's been worried. Uh, she's been she she is kind of panicked right now. She's been worried over the last sure. week whether or not there's going to be a code green and she's going to be compulsory, you know, asked to come into work. That's not happened yet. As far as last night goes, uh, I talked to her for a little bit or heard from her and uh, there are no cases as of yet. There are some um, there are people they're testing. There are no cases in her in her hospital. Uh, my wife, there are no cases in her hospital. In fact, census, meaning the, the number of people in her hospital is low as of right now. That could change. But we're just and I'll just speak as far as my, my wife goes. She is she's incredibly frustrated right now because she is naturally a contrarian. And she's seeing this panic. I hate people like that. <laughs> yeah. She, she is seeing this panic and she feels helpless to stop this. And so, of course, it's not. It's not theoretical. I mean, we've had all these questions and I hate that it's dominated uh, her and I's conversations over the last couple of weeks, but that's just the way that it is. And so it's not like I'm just coming out of this. This is no, no, uh, no concern whatsoever. The, the, the thing that we keep coming back to is, is Bella. It, yes, this is an overreaction, but every virus is serious to those who are the most uh, potentially compromised mm -hmm. beforehand. That's what we keep coming back to. That's sad. Viruses, viruses are bad. They're bad. They spread. That's what viruses do. And they affect people adversely. That's what viruses do. Sicknesses do that. But we can't suicide our economy because of all this we can't shut down people's livelihoods because of all this and that's what we keep coming back to 
I think another important point that Aaron just made, there's nothing to lose by asking these questions. Nothing. There's, there's nothing to lose because if this is a cataclysmic event, it makes the whole debate irrelevant anyway. And, and asking these questions won't stop that from occurring. It's going Precisely. to run its course. Okay. So there's only, if you want to do a cost benefit analysis of asking contrarian skeptical questions, it's a hundred percent bonus provided you're taking the safety precautions. You know, I, I mean, I'm not, except to come to work, I've not left my home any to go anywhere else since my gym closed in almost a week. You know, we, my, Amy was up disinfecting the house again just this morning as I was leaving to come into here. Okay. I mean, we've got the kids doubling their vitamin C and D intake. I mean, they still haven't seen their grandparents in a, in a week. We're not, we're take, we, we would advise you to take the safety precautions seriously. We're taking them seriously at my house and I'm one of the ones leading the charge of the, of the, of the, of the contrarian brigade. That's the, the, the virus is separate though from the public policy debate. This is for a self-governing, the, 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 the medical experts discuss the virus and they, they deal with that. We, the people take, take care of the public policy aspect of it. And we're the ones, we're the ones, not, not non-governmental organizations. We're the ones in a representative Republic. We're the ones that the constitution has empowered to weigh the cost benefit here of whether the cure is worse than the disease, worse than the disease. There's no, there's nothing wrong with having this conversation. We're, we're not empowered to stop. It's not like the virus will be 10 times worse. If we ask these questions, we have no power over that whatsoever. We do have power though, over what our way of life looks like when this is over or how it's going on. So there's only a net positive by asking these questions. We'll go to our good friend, Bob Vanderplatz uh, from The Family Leader. Talk about the church's role in this when we come back. Right now, the American people, we are in the fight of our lives. Some of us and some people we know are fighting for their lives. The vast, vast majority of us, though, are fighting for our way of life. And while some are trying to politicize this crisis, Patriot Mobile wants to help us stick together. So during this difficult time of social distancing, Patriot Mobile is helping Americans stay connected by reducing all of their pricing for a limited time. Plans start as low as $25 a month with an unlimited plan right now for just 55 bucks a month. So there's never been a better time to join the Patriot Mobile family. Call them right now. Unlimited data plans for only $55 a month. Call 972-PATRIOT. That's 972-PATRIOT or visit them online at patriotmobile.com slash blaze, patriotmobile.com slash blaze. Use the promo code Steve for a free activation plus a free gift. Free activation plus a free gift with the promo code Steve on top of unlimited data plans as low as $55 a month. You can even keep your number, get the same nationwide service while supporting the values you believe in because Patriot Mobile is the only conservative mobile phone company founded by freedom-loving Americans. PatriotMobile.com slash Steve. PatriotMobile.com slash Steve or give them a call at 972-PATRIOT. Let's go to our good friend, Bob Vanderplatz, joining us from The Family Leader. Good to see you, my friend. How are you? I'm doing really well. It's a special day, Steve. Darla and I became grandparents this morning at 
uh, Caroline Jean. So I've been singing Sweet Caroline all morning. <laughs> you know, you've got other things on your mind, dude. You don't, you don't have to hang out with uh, schmucks like us. You've got, you got far cuter fish to be frying right now, brother. Well, well, here's the deal is that because of the coronavirus outbreak, we can't go to the hospital anyhow. Mm. So we've been Skyping with Caroline, with Hans and Courtney, their parents. Uh, but it's, it's a great time. But we are looking forward to seeing that, that little girl. Uh, sometime in the near future. Well, congratulations to all, uh, every member of uh, the Vanderplatz family. So, yeah, thank, and I'm sure your guests are going, there's no way he's old enough to be a grandpa, but here I am. Actually, I don't think any of them were thinking that, actually. <laughs> but we'll move on. Yeah, Still congratulations on the grandkid part. Okay. We'll do. Um, let's talk about some of the latest developments that uh, we have seen uh, today. Uh, and I, I spent, uh, as I mentioned to the audience at the top of the show, I spent a good deal of my weekend working with a couple of the researchers here at the blaze to kind of try to frame a, not the, but a definitive public policy argument because coronavirus is now far more than just a medical, uh, crisis. It's a, it's a public policy one. And we have Morgan Stanley is telling its investors this morning to expect a 24% reduction in the economy in the second quarter, I mean, that's that's Great Depression level is what is what we're talking about. Uh, the president tweeted last night that at the end of these 15 days, he's going to examine whether whether or not the cure has become worse than the disease. We're into week two and a half now of Congress, but the only thing they have shown they can do well is spend money we don't have. And now when, when a lot of people actually need them to do it, ironically enough, they seemingly cannot figure it out. Okay. <laughs> to 47 we can't move it forward uh, it, that, that's some schadenfreude if there ever was some okay I mean, that's that's almost NBA losing its season because of China that it was genuflecting to levels of schadenfreude but as you sit back and look at all of this it it appears now that the, the that all of the medical precautions we could legitimately put in place are in place um, the vice president said on Friday we've got 20,000 a stockpile of 20,000 respirators, for example, if we need them. We we have pretty much mobilized everything to the best we could with the timetable that we had. It now appears this is beginning to pivot now into the public policy conversation about what is the larger, what are the larger ramifications of this, given the data that we have? What are your thoughts as you've watched this all transpire? Well, first of all, I think uh, we've seen America be America. We've responded the way we were told to respond. Uh, I think people are, are being wise. They're using their best judgment. They're trying to flatten the curve, stop stop the spread of the virus, keep the elderly safe, the disabled safe, the frail safe. But I think you're also seeing President Trump saying, okay, we're going to apply some common sense here as well. Uh, we're going to give this a few more days. We're going to ride out this 15 days that we said we were going to do. And then we're going to see, okay, what are the consequences of shutting a country down or bringing a country to its knees economically? Because there are consequences on both sides, and none of them are good. So hopefully uh, we can stop the spread and we can get this economy up and running again and, and going again. Because there's ill effects to an economy that gets drugged to its knees. Now, none of us want to see people die unnecessarily. Mm -hmm. uh, we're all in favor of that. But we also want to apply a great level of common sense to it as well. And that's why I think when you take a look at even the vote that was done in the U.S. Senate, 47 to 47 for a couple of trillion dollar bailout that they can't even get their arms around right now. Um, we want some common sense leadership right now. And quite frankly, I think President Trump's tweet, 
should be reassuring to all Americans, especially the business owners, that, hey, we're going to take a close look at this about, you know, what is the balance? What's the trade-off here? Are we doing things right? And at the same time, can we keep America moving? I know you and I have always been the types. We just don't accept the whole fiscal, social, conservative, uh, false choice that the reality is that you I, that you cannot have a limited government that uh, doesn't infringe on the liberties and freedoms of the people and allows them to economically thrive if they're not a moral people, right? And on the other hand, a, a, a moral people are going to demand less government in their lives because they can handle most of their own business, right? These This is really um, a symbiotic relationship. And so when, when we talk about... About this, I would say the, the central nervous system, the brain the, of, of any culture is its moral and spiritual core. That, that's, that's where the thoughts and, and beliefs and worldviews are dictated. That's the hub of, 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 the, the, you know, of the think tank of any civilization. But then I would say its economy is, is really, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's the heart of it. It's the lifeblood of it. It's, the, it's what keeps those uh, things uh, that we want to be able to believe and do and makes them uh, feasible realistically uh, in a world east of Eden. And we have greatly imperiled that and history also shows when you are in peril there, then you're in peril from a, from, a, from a national sovereignty and a national defense perspective at the exact same time. Well, you really are. And I think even go uh, deeper theologically, Steve, uh, biblically, is that we were created to produce. There are things that we have a balance of wisdom as well. James says, you know, ask God for wisdom and he'll give it abundantly. He'll give it freely. Uh, the other thing, though, is that Jesus cursed a fig tree because it wasn't producing uh, Jesus was upset with a guy with the talent that went and hid his talent because he didn't produce with the talent. So we were created produ- to produce. So I think what you're seeing in the American spirit right now, they're okay to say, okay, we're willing to go on pause. We're willing to flatten this curve. But we also want to say, okay, now what's a common sense measure here of how can we keep America producing and being the America that we all want to, to have as well? Bob, since you cited scripture, let's talk about the church's role in this. Because it's only been brought into the conversation from the standpoint of, can you shutter your doors so we don't infect more people? I think this is, this is really the first crisis in American history that I, I bet I've got to believe it is from it. That's any form of an existential nature that it didn't cause people to flood into churches, but to avoid them instead. Okay. Now, a lot of churches are holding uh, services online uh, that millions of Americans are taking part in. We've done that with our own church for the last couple of weeks, for example. But if, but you know, if you're looking for, uh, if, if you're looking for places where there's a stockpile of caregivers where there's there's a stockpile of charity uh, and mercy and and supplies that can be mobilized for people in medical crisis. I mean, I, I can kind of think of one. I mean, what what's what's like the first institution to like show up anywhere on the planet whenever a, a, a people are imperiled from a health or natural disaster crisis, or at least one of them anyway, is what? It's the church, right? And 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 so, I mean. Where's the mobilization aspect of that? Can you speak to that at all? Well, first of all, pra- first of all, praise God that we have technology, that we can do online services, that we can keep people connected through virtual technology. Uh, there's a church here in West Des Moines that Darla and I belong to and has this, had, had its largest numbers online outside of any holiday service that they've ever had. So praise God for that. But the other part is, Steve, we've talked about the Family Leaders Church Ambassador Network before. And exporting that model called the Daniel Initiative to other states. We're right now in 11 states. 
and was primarily to get to elect ministers of God and to advance righteous policy. But now what we're seeing because of that network, to give an example, Iowa, we have 1,800 churches, 2,700 pastors engaged in our network. And right now the governor's office is working hand in hand with our church ambassador network about how can the church be a vehicle for childcare, meeting the community needs, blood banking, food banking, all those types of things. And who better to know than the local church about what are the needs of its communities? And so even tomorrow morning, uh, Governor Reynolds is gonna be joining a call with our pastors and she's gonna be discussing this. And it's really a shepherd to shepherd relationship, the way God designed the institutions to work. So we're excited here in Iowa and with the other 10 states that we represent through the Daniel Initiative, that we're actually seeing this in this crisis, which might be one of the positive ripple effects out of this. I mean, when we're, we're talking about, um, uh, if we're talking about minus 24% economic oh, growth in the second quarter, there's going to be a lot of people that could use a food pantry, That, that right? Uh, I mean, we have all of those things. When you talk to your contacts around the country, are, are there governors engaging them on the level that Governor Reynolds seems to be engaging you guys to say, hey, we, 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 I mean, we need all the support here that, that we can get. Government cannot do all of this alone. You know, Governor DeWine out of Ohio has been really good working with the church network in Ohio. Uh, Florida is using its church network. Uh, matter of fact, they just had Marco Rubio on a call with their pastors, uh, and they basically burned down the phone system. Then, then they had 3,000 downloads after 500 joined the call. So you're seeing pastors wanting to engage. You're starting to see government leaders wanting to engage with the church because the church also knows where should it go, who really needs it, who doesn't need it. And they're there then to basically mentor them along this journey. But not only if you see 24% reduction, which is uh, Great Depression levels, but that ripple effect is going to be felt inside the churches. Uh, philanthropy, donations, ministries like the family leader, others like that. It's definitely going to feel an impact. So nobody's going to escape uh, a 24% decline in the economy. Before we let you go, it'll be a week before we talk to you here on this show again. I'm not even going to, even a, don't get, don't worry. I'm not even going to attempt to ask you where are we going to be a week from now? Okay. I'm not going to ask you that. I am sure. going to ask you though, um, what are the indicators that you're going to be watching? Because when we also talk to you a week from now, it's going to be right on the doorstep of that 15-day uh, effort that the White House launched a week ago Monday. That's coming up a week from tomorrow, uh, the last day of March, right? So on the eve of that, what are some of the things that you're going to be watching uh, over the course of the next seven days before we talk to you again? Well, I think a couple of things. One is, are these some of these vaccines that President Trump talked about, do they actually have potential? Could they actually work? Two is, is there another way to approach this? Is there a way that we can shelter the elderly, the frail, and the disabled while allowing America to get back to work? Or is there just no way that we can do that? I think what we're going to be listening for, and I think what President Trump is going to be listening for, is what is the balance that we need to achieve to keep this country moving forward? Because I, I also heard President Trump say yesterday is that when we get on the backside of this, there's going to be such a pent-up demand that this economy is just going to rock and roll. Uh, I'm not so sure about that. There's going to be a lot of money taken out of this economy from people who do the real work and the real living and the real breathing uh, in these communities that, quite frankly, that $3,000 check they might get, that's going to last for just a little while right. before they get back to work. Right. 
Excellent point. Good to talk to you, my friend. Congratulations again. All right. All and right. Uh, pass along uh, Amy and I's uh, well wishes and congratulations to the rest of your family. Okay. All right. God bless, guys. All right. Take care. Yeah. Any thoughts on the conversation we just had with Mr. Vanderplatz? There's so much going on there. Uh, even it doesn't make sense. In the, the Democrats now are you know basically in you know fever dream issuing thousand page uh, uh, options for eleven hundred and nineteen yeah. page uh, legislation. Just out of the blue, yeah. because sure that's I'm sure they just threw that together at the last second that. This is fa- and they're asking for all cr- all kinds of crazy union empowerment things that I- so giving money now without an end in sight, even in the Republican uh, bill that was out there, I, a lot of people are supporting it. But again, we're we're not really dealing with the fundamental issues of of public policy, broadly speaking, going forward. So uh, set the wish casting aside, set the virtue signaling aside, and focus on something long-term. And that applies to when when Bob keeps using the flatten the curve thing. I get, I, I understand the theory behind it. But if this thing is as regional as it seems to be after 15 days, the flattening the curve, sticking to that mantra, is going to be the equivalent of giving up. As a nation, it, I don't it, know how you how do you flatten a curve when you don't know when it starts. That's what I wrote about. That's what I wrote. That's what I wrote about for the Blaze today. To me, to me, the most important question that needs to be answered. If we're gonna if we're gonna get in, and maybe you guys disagree, but in my opinion, when if we're gonna if we're gonna do a Venn diagram of where the the pathology and public policy intersect, I, I think the most important question that needs to be answered is how long has the virus been here, okay? Because uh, I was talking to a friend of mine uh, earlier today whose brother is a doctor in a state with a high elderly population. And he was working in the ER and about a month ago, old lady comes in off a cruise ship and she cannot breathe. Uh, she's on, a, she's on a, a ventilator and everything. And, they, and, and this is before they knew what a coronavirus was or they even had tests to find out you know, if they could even identify a, a viral strain they had not seen before. And so when they, when they hospitalized her, they did so with acute RSV and pneumonia. And now it's been four weeks and she's just now getting strong enough where she can get ready to leave the hospital. Okay. And then guess what she tested positive for last week after being there for three weeks. Guess what she tested positive for last week? COVID-19. And I, I asked, I said, Hey, I mean, how likely is it that, I mean, the CDC is saying that right now, the earliest they have in America is Spokane, Washington. I want to say January 17th from directly from Wuhan. Well, if, if this has been here for that long, how many people got diagnosed with, with acute respiratory virus or pneumonia for weeks, if not months in America and had serious issues yes. with this that, that, that we just, that aren't, weren't even on our COVID radar. Right. And so we don't even know, how do you flatten a curve when you don't know when it and starts? And that was happening during the height of the cold and flu right. season and what wasn't happening during that time hospitals were not being overrun and that's the reason why they said we had to flatten the curve so things don't get overrun it, there's no point to flatten the curve if, and we have all kinds of anecdotal evidence between the three of us across the country that that's not happening in some isolated spots it is it, but in across isolated the country, spots, yes it, it, to the level that you would shut a whole country yes. down so far we're not seeing that that may change this week we don't know we'll come back hour two is next we're going to answer as many of your questions as we can stay tuned
Let's get back out of here. Hour number two, live and on demand on Blaze TV, radio, and podcast. You can also get samples of this show that you can share at youtube.com slash Steve Dace. I am Steve Dace. Todd Erzin, Aaron McIntyre here with me as well. If you do listen today via the podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review if you like what we do here. The more of those we get, the more it helps the show to grow. Thank you to the thousands of you that have given us a five-star review already. The rest of you, if you like the show, we all got extra time right about now. So (laughs) if you want me to stop begging for these, let's just go ahead and flood the market right now while we're all just sitting around waiting for something to happen. Okay. Um, We are going to get now to our Monday town hall and it's uh, the monthly uh, Facebook ask me anything edition. The questions selected by Todd, I have not seen them. I've not even looked at any of the questions. So I'm going I'm to see and hear all of these in real time for the first time uh, with all of you in the audience. So I'm, I'm not even prepared for what's coming other than the pre- preparation that I've already done. Uh, part one of our weekly town hall is brought to you by our friends over at Freedom Project Academy, Freedom Project Education. Uh, that's Dr. Duke Pesta's brainchild, and he's a great guy. He's been a guest in this show numerous times over the years, tenured professor of English at the University of Wisconsin. He's also, also the director of Freedom Project Academy, which is leading the fight against the left's takeover of public education. Now, when you think about the decline in public schools, you think about places like California and New York, but it has become systemic. You've got Catholic elementary schools, uh, have teachers sharing LGBT books. A Kentucky bill recently was trying to require sex ed as young as kindergarten, uh, a proposed LGBT school in Alabama of all places. So if you're sick of leftists trying to indoctrinate your kids, please consider Freedom Project Academy. It's an accredited classical online school school built on, easy for me to say, built on Judeo-Christian values for students K through 12. Our son Noah took this for several years and would still be in it. It's just he had some extracurricular uh, needs and desires that prompted him to go to a different education option this year. But it was a great asset to our home for the last few years. We would highly recommend it. If you want to learn more uh, and request your free information packet today, freedomforschool.com. Again, that's freedomforschool.com. A lot of you are going to be doing virtual classrooms around the country right now. That's what they do. And you might end up finding out, you know... Maybe I don't have to send them to that indoctrination center anymore. That We can make it work here at home if we have the right option. See if Freedom Project Academy is that option for you at freedomforschool.com. Let's begin. It's our Monday town hall here in our second hour in this month's version of the Facebook Ask Me Anything. So social media gets to take over the rest of the hour. Aaron, you may begin. All right, we'll start with Angela Rich. She says some of the opposition to the idea of a more surgical approach, quote unquote, where we isolate only those who are at high risk in order to open back up the economy comes from rural doctors who say they do not have the resources to handle the virus even this way. One physician said they have 25 bed hospital and only two ventilators. Broadlawns here in Des Moines, which is a, a smaller hospital, said they have seven ventilators. What are your thoughts on this? So the rural considerations for how to handle this. I think that that comes down to ultimately what is the, what's the level of communicability of the disease. Okay. And I think that also then comes down to what is the, what is the mortality rate of the disease? All right. So if you look at New York city, as we're speaking right now, New York state, I don't know what the number is today, but when I went to bed last night, New York state was responsible for 60% of all the coronavirus cases in the country. 
60%. So despite how acute it is there, New York City's current mort- or New York's current mortality rate as of the time we went on the air was point ze- was was 0.7%. 0.7%. Now the main way that we were the, so so we had remember and who was this that sent this Angela? Angela. Yep. So Angela, we 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 had to practice this social distancing because large groups of people is what is what made us susceptible uh, to a, and the way that this virus is communicable, right? That was what we were told. And so the most populous city in America, New York City, um, 16 million people, I think, live there. And right now they're looking at a 0.7% mortality rate. Now, I know that you didn't ask me so much about the mortality rate as much as the strain on the system. But I'm, I'm using that starkest number of all because that is in even a part of the country where we have the greatest congestion of people. The last state to get a confirmed case of coronavirus was West Virginia. West Virginia is also one of the most what states in the union? Rural. It's one of the most rural states in the union. So if communicability and large gatherings of people are where you're the most vulnerable, then where are there going to be the fewest large gatherings of people in America? Where are those going to be? There. There. In, in, rural, case, in, in rural communities. I would argue the, op- the opposite is actually true. Targeted isolation is even easier in a rural community. It's the fewer, pe- the, fewer the people, the easier it is to practice, to, to, to protect the herd. All right. It, the, the argument actually goes the other way in a place like New York. I mean, how do you. So let's say only 5% of New Yorkers are vulnerable to this, but that's 16 million people. All right. So 10% of 16 million people would be 1.6 million people. 5% would be 800,000 people. All right. How do we isolate 800,000 people? That's the, that's the tougher argument, actually. The rural argument, I think, actually goes the other way, which is you've got people that are better spaced out. How often in a rural community are you sitting in a gathering of 50 to more people anyway, other than a church service? So I, I actually think the demographics of the rural community are make it easier to do what we're talking or, or discussing at the moment. And I know part of this question is making it seem as if it's another country heard from. See, it's it's the rural uh, Midwesterners it's, it, that are also concerned about this, the experts there. Well, here's the thing. Experts everywhere, the, the, the Kool-Aid is drinking is drank j- just as deeply, regarded whether it's medicine, whether it's educrats. You, you would think that maybe like the university center uh, in in Alabama would would not be full uh, with the same kind of progressivism as New York. Well, it might not be in terms of pure volume, but you'd be wrong. It exists there as well. It it gets into those places. Yes. And the medical experts in the middle of Iowa are, are getting drunk on the fear just like every place else. And it's just like, it's what you have to do. They're the people that believe in abortion just as passionately or more than anybody else. They're the people that believe in transgenderism just as passionately. It's, it's, this is very this is a vital point that I, you're making too. We have to come to grips with the fact. And this is what I was talking about last week. Where does the expertise end and the worldview begin? Exactly. All right. So if you've so so Angela, you've got you've got um, a, a mechanical engineer that you're consulting on a project in your rural community. 
you wouldn't presume to know more about how to engineer something mechanically than him, right? You wouldn't presume to know that, right? That's his area of expertise. But when he looks at you and says, we acquired this knowledge through millions of years of random evolution, just passing this on via cellular memory. What a, what a, what a, and, and by natural selection, thinning out those who could not sustain such knowledge. Here we are. Would, would, would you look at him and say, well, I just, I, yeah. Or would you say, I, I got to call BS on that. That's, this is an important thing. They're all, they were all fed the Imperial College type of alarmist exactly. studies mm-hmm. everywhere. Everywhere. And they there, liked there, it. There is no like Hillsdale College al- alternative view. It doesn't exist. And I really think we have to come to grips as we face more crises in the future as a people. You need to come to grips, and all of us do, that all of our institutions are overrun with the confirmation bias of leftism. It is why all of the solutions that are being offered, like freedom and liberty, you know, the things that built America, that made America even what it what it ever was or currently is notice those things aren't being relied on whatsoever right now to save us all of the solutions all of them every last one of them come from growing government and limiting individual autonomy you limit your freedom you limit your rights we grow government all the more whose worldview is that not ours not ours, not ours. That's not a coin. It's not. That's a. Cons- it's not a conspiracy. All right. If if I get, I I I sent this note to my own pastor, who's who's help asking me to you know, hey, if you research stuff, send it along. I'm looking for as many sources as I can, and you work on the front lines of this. So I sent a note to my pastor with some of this over the weekend, and here's what I told him: If I got a group of people who had only read Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth, that's all they'd ever read about the Book of Revelation. They didn't know what an amillennialist was. They didn't know what an Augustine was. They didn't know what a postmillennial was. They didn't know what a pilgrim was. They didn't know about any of it. All they ever knew about the end times of, of the events that, that lead to the return of Christ is they, the only thing they had studied outside of the book of Revelation and Thessalonians and all the other books in the New Testament that talk about eschatology. The only thing they'd studied was how Lindsay's late great planet Earth. And so that's the prism that they're interpreting all of those, all of those teachings through. If I got, these are brilliant men, brilliant theologians. If, I mean, I'm not going to debate, you know, Greek or Aramaic or any, I'm not, or, or archaeology or any of that with them. They're way, way out of my league. But if I ask them, I've got a dilemma I can't solve about my eschatology. And I put the hundred best of them in a room and I ask them, hey, what's the answer to this question? Since all they ever studied was the Hal Lindsey's late great planet Earth. Guess what answer I'm going to get? What's ever in that book is what I'm going to get. That's called confirmation bias. That's why the scriptures say there's wisdom to be found in a multitude of counsel. That's what we're talking about here. This, I don't believe it's a global conspiracy whatsoever. Because if it was, we would have been a test pattern. Shows like this last week. <laughs> All right. That guy they banned on Medium, that poor former Romney staffer that got banned on Medium, they wouldn't have let him get two and a half million clicks. That thing doesn't even get published. It's confirmation bias. They all drink from the same well. They all learn from the same sources. They were all taught the same information. That's why I'm looking for things like the Dr. Katz, who's the Yale medical prof- male medical professional at Yale, who wrote the piece in the New York Times over the weekend asking, hey, is the cure worse than the disease? 
I'm looking at Joseph Ioannidis at Stanford, okay, renowned epidemiologist who wrote a piece for Stats News and now has a peer-reviewed paper that's out today. Is the cure worse than the disease? Because they're in this, 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 they're, they're in this symphony. They've got a seat in the orchestra. All right, when they speak up, the rest of the orchestra will listen. So it's not a conspiracy or anything else. It's just confirmation bias. If you're only surrounded by people who think a certain way, all of the answers you're going to get are going to be those certain answers. And that's true of even your rural doctors. I mean, you know this, Todd, you send your kids to an exurbian school here in Iowa, but it's a, it's a public school. Correct. Has there never been a time when they've come home, you've had to be like, eh, dad's got to call BS on that. Never. Because you go to a nice isolated community. And everybody goes to, same, goes to the same Christmas mass at midnight. There's never been a time there was nothing in any of their textbooks, nothing at all that you thought, all right, you got to sit down here with the old man because I, I, daddy's got to call horse pucky on that. Never been a time, oh. even in tiny Carlisle, Iowa, there's never been a time. Quite the contrary. They knew who I am. Exactly. Man. Because they're getting, they're buying the, those kids are getting the same textbooks as well. You want to know the difference between a district like Carlisle, Iowa and, and New York City? It's whether they'll listen to the parents that like totters or not. That's the difference. The curriculum and everything else is not any different. The difference is whether they actually care what the parents think when they raise objections and start raising hell about it. And that's true, too. Your rural community may look like an American Gothic painting. But when you get to the professional information, especially where science is involved, it's all going to come from the same Q source, guys. You know, one of the things that people have used against the Gospels is, well, you know, in certain events... John has has things in a different order than Matthew does. So there's contradictions there. If you lined up witnesses in a trial for your alibi and 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 every witness said the exact same thing. Now, now they can't contradict each other on material events, right? They can't say you weren't there at 2 at 2 a.m. Well, he was with me at 2 a.m. No, he was with me. That can't happen. But if one of them says, I don't know, I think he left around 225. The other one says, I don't know, I thought it was on 235, 240. I didn't really look at my watch. If they all stand up there and say, Steve Dace was with me precisely from the time of 1.45 a.m. to 2.30 a.m. And so he, therefore, he could not have possibly done the crime. Thank you. If they all stand up and say that, wrote completely uniform, will a jury believe that? No. No, because it looks rehearsed, right? The fact that there's multiple different perspectives on the same facts actually lends to the integrity of the Gospels. That doesn't happen here with your science. It's all the same people regurgitating all the same talking points all of the time. And that's why they need to be prompted. That's, that's true of your buddy who goes to church with you, but he's a doctor. He's, he's, he's getting JAMA and all the same resource material that everybody else is getting. So that's, that's why they need to be asked these kinds of questions because they're being fed a worldview bias. That's just the reality of the situation. The reason why the American College of Psychiatry 50 years ago taught homosexuality was a mental illness is because the Christian worldview was prevalent within the American psychology or college of psychiatry. Do you know why it no longer teaches that? Because a different worldview is present. That's why, okay? So where does the expertise end and the worldview begins? You can't ask that question enough about this story. And and if we learn any lessons from this going forward, we need to learn. All of our institutions are overrun by this confirmation bias. So we need to constantly ask these contrarian questions, even of the people who agree with us in these institutions, because they're fed from the same source material everybody else is. 
I think that kind of lends well into Jordan Ellis's question, who asks, why has Trump been so willing to tank the economy and stock market, his administration's crown jewels in an election year, if this virus is much ado about nothing? Well, I think you're learning now he ain't so willing. At least he's hinting that he's not. I, if I had to, based on people I know and, and my knowledge of how politics works, what I'm about to give you is not like a little birdie scoop. And this is purely an educated guess. All right. Purely. But it is an educated. It's a guess, but it's an educated one. What I believe is the medical professionals came here and, and came with the Imperial College and all the alarmists and said, shut it all down. Shut it all down like two weeks ago would be my guess. They wanted me to do that. He resisted. Then there's the notion of, well, we'll just start leaking stuff to CNN and everything else. It makes it look like you hate Americans and we'll, you know, we'll deep state you to death. All right. And so then their next proposal was, how about 30 days? Give us 30 days just to make sure. Because 15 days is an odd term. I mean, when's the last time he signed a contract for 15 days? When was the last time he had a 15 day waiting period on something? That's not a, that's, that's not a typical term of, of probation on a job or any form of a contract, right? That's not a term, a, a time period that we, we just associate with on a regular basis. So if I had to get guess, Jordan, educated based on people I know and my knowledge of politics, but I wasn't in there. And so I'm not getting this directly. So it's not a scoop, but it's an educated guess. They went from shutting it all down right away to give us 30 days. The president said, oh, I'm guessing I'll meet you halfway. And that's where this odd time period of 15 days came from. Okay. Um, as to the premise of your question, you know, George W. Bush became a wartime president on September 11th, 2001. His, he was largely reelected in 2004 because there was doubts about John Kerry as a commander in chief. And yet in his second term, he allowed Iraq to be reduced to a quagmire. Um, never could quite get a handle on Afghanistan. He was listening to experts too. I mean, human nature is fallible. It's why your founding fathers gave you a president and not a surgeon general or the joint chiefs of staff as the chief executive of the country so that when they make errors, when, when they don't know when their expertise ends and the worldview begins, you can either A, speak up and say, hey, you work for us, come correct, or B, if they don't listen to you, get rid of them. You can't get rid of the joint chiefs of staff at the Pentagon. You, you can't get rid of the surgeon general directly. Or, or, or the head of the CDC or any other non-government organization. But you can't hold a, the, the CEO accountable. And so, there again, this we're back to there's expertise and then there's worldview. We, we just, we can't reinforce that point enough. And I'll, I'll, I'll use an analogy I used last week. I have debated on previous era, iterations of this show, men, of, men from NASA on climate change. I don't know cotton picking thing about it about global warming compared to them i don't know any of it but since i but once i realized we weren't actually debating that we were debating their view of the world their worldview well now we're having a different conversation and that's where i get to ask questions like if you're a committed darwinist who believes in natural selection why do you even care about anthropomorphic global warming the, the ecosystem has just decided our run at the top of the food chain is over. Time for the next species over the next few million years to, to take their place as king of the hill. Why do you even care? 
There's no, when we get into worldview bias, we're beyond expertise. Just because someone, just because, think of how many people, think of how many surgeons have operated on Americans who, when they go into that OR, need to know with absolute certainty where the pancreas is at, where the gallbladder is, where the carotid artery is, man, because if they, if it's the wrong artery, and they, they, they think they can risk cutting it, but it's not. And it's the carotid and, the, and, the, and, and you bleed out right there on the slab. Their lives are over as well as yours, right? They d- demand with great certainty. And yet, then they'll go out and you'll see them on TV and say stuff like, I think there's 57 genders and people are born gay and don't ever change no matter what. And, right, right. Yep. Okay. Yeah. That's the tough part for me. Yeah. I understand <laughs> just... there's, a, there's expertise and then there's the worldview. Yep. And what we need to be asking right now, where does one end and the other begin at this moment? I will say that the 15 days may just be that that's roughly believed to be the what the incubation it's of the 14 days rate, is the so period. Let this but how do you like Rand Paul's in quarantine for 14 days? Do you think Rand Paul got coronavirus the day that he tested? No, I, no, I agree. So I, we don't even I, know that he I might think, have had it for three months. Who knows? But it, and that's the other part about the. I know you're not. Yeah. I want to make this point, too, because I've been meaning to make it for a week and I keep forgetting to. So I want to do it now, folks. If this is have some common sense. OK, if if this is making its way. If this is making its way to the political and celebrity class, they're not hanging around with China. There's 370,000, this past year, 370,000 Chinese college students attended university here in America. How many of them do you think went home for the two to three week break over Christmas? Not even knowing what was going on in Wuhan because their government lies to them too, right? How many of them do you think came back here with it, right? Do you, how many of those kinds of people do you think and I like Rand Paul. I've always liked Rand. Just don't agree with him all the time, but I've always liked him personally. Met him several times. How many? How many? How many? But how many of those kinds of people do you think the Rand Pauls of the world brush up against? Furthermore, how many of those kinds of people do you think the Idris Elbas and Tom Hanks of the world brush up against? Tom Hanks is arguably the biggest movie star in the world. How many, how many just, how much of the riffraff at LaGuardia or San Francisco airport or LAX do you think he's just breathing on and, and, and sharing doorknobs with on a regular basis? Probably not many, right? He's got security detail, right? If this virus has made its way to people like that, then it's far beyond what we, what we currently just think, do the common sense. It's if it, it's made its way to the Iranian high command. They're, they're got people there that have it. How, how many of the Ayatollahs you think are going down pressing the flesh, man? Really? If it's made its way to the elite of the elite of the elite in these societies, then how much is it run? It's how many? How much of it has it already run a course to the rest of us? That's why the pub, the number one question that needs to be asked when you intersect intersect the pathology with the public policy: When did it get here? Because that, uh, uh, that tells me really then whether there's still a cliff, whether we haven't even reached the cliff, whether we're halfway up the cliff, whether we're on the way down, whether there never was a cliff, it just has to run its course like the cold and flu season and pneumonia does. We don't know any of that yet. Has anybody even made that point to you or asked that question? In any plague in human history, which class of people are always the last to get it, guys? The elite, every time. 
Now we got senators testing positive. The lieutenant governor of Minnesota's kid or somebody just did. Okay, the biggest movie star in the world just tested positive. These aren't people running through running through the the nursing homes of America saying to the to the elderly, breathe on me. They're not doing that. So if this got to them and they're testing positive, can you even imagine how many of the rest of us have already been exposed to this and are asymptomatic as we speak? Just do and have been all along. This is that's just I don't need to go to Johns Hopkins to figure that out. That's human nature, common sense. All right, if you think that you can only rely on those people, don't vote this year. Don't vote. Call up Johns Hopkins, the, the experts. Ask Anthony Fauci, hey, do you mind voting for me by proxy? I'm just not qualified. I can't think this through on my own. Because the presumption of our Constitution was that you could do those things. You could think through those things. You could research information. You can, you can interpret enough data. And that when things were beyond your faculties and capabilities, you could ask people to get the right answers. And then government of the people, by the people, and for the people would not perish from this earth. And lastly, besides the medical professionals, last Saturday, so nine days ago, I'm at a mall packed with people. And so I'm sure a lot of other people are as well. And they're also going out to beaches and things like that. It's on that very day while I'm at that mall packed with people and I'm going off just to get a uh, break. I'm there with my wife and my daughters and I'm going through Twitter. And Twitter is full of people on the right. Virtue signaling the hell out of that thing. Like, how dare you people? You people want all the old people. That was coming from the right. Mm -hmm. If you don't think that had an impact on Donald Trump... And that that had if he Trump temporarily pushed back on the doctors and said this is actually more holistic. This is an economy. This is an entire nation state that drives the entire world. We need a couple days. It I think it had a ton to do with the pressure on the right pressure that I believe was strictly fear based uh, and is now being called into question by other actual medical professionals. If you're a person that believes the, the, earth, the if you're voting for candidates that believe the earth is doomed in 10 years, then uh, how much time do I have? About three minutes. Mm-hmm. All right. So this is in my Blaze article today. It's pinned up my Facebook page. It's pinned to my Twitter page. Go read it. It's all my research in one compilation, basically. Share it with everybody you know. So a, a contact at a university hospital told me this weekend, He's all right. They, they've tested 1,117 people there as of Saturday. 68, 6% tested positive for coronavirus. Out of those 68, one of them was showing symptoms to the point they opened up a patient file. The rest were just sent home. Now, this is a liberal university in a very liberal college town watching a lot of with a lot of people that watch a lot of very liberal media. What do you think the ratio of people that are freaking out that watch CNN to get tested compared to Fox probably is? A lot would be the answer, right? Particularly because CNN is is in is in every what? Airport. Where are you around a whole bunch sure, of people? Sure. So that's what, so there, you want more confirmation? So so the people that are going to be the most moved by hysteria, the people that are going to be the most inclined to, to preemptively freak out in a liberal city, in a liberal community, on a liberal college campus, flood there, go in and get tested. So these are the people that are the most likely to overreact to a process. And still with that sample, 6% came positive. One symptomatic to the point that they have a case file on that person. 
And that's with the people that are the most likely to react. All right. Now, do you think in that community only 68 people have coronavirus? Nope. The math just doesn't. No way. No way that's true. Do you know you'd have to. That's like a that's like a statistical the way statistical modeling works. You would have to, it's, if, that's the, if, if you only, if you found the only 68 people per 1,000 that had coronavirus in that community, you just did the statistical modeling version of, you totally blindfolded me, turn me around three times, all right? And, I, and with the very first swing, I turned around and hit the pinata plush and broke it. One in a million, kid. Good shot. One in a million. And this is That's the what I did. that the experts who disagree with us say that most people who get it under the age of 60 get turn out just fine and have minimal to exactly. zero symptoms. Exactly. But you got everybody somehow. Exactly. We have to go to break here. I want to tease the next question from Curtis Hecox, who says, Steve, go talk to the doctors and nurses working in the emergency rooms in a many in a major city. This isn't overhyped or a power grab. Resisting quarantine during a pandemic is the epitome of selfishness and will lead to more death and suffering. All right. We will definitely address that when we come back, because the amount of false premises there are breathtaking. That's just all emotion. No, co- That's somebody who needs to just say to Johns Hopkins, you vote for me this fall. I, I can't handle this responsibility. I'm not adult enough for it in a moment. If you're thinking, you know what, man, this might be a good time to get back on that wagon about losing weight, getting healthy, because obesity is one of the things that can weaken your immune system, by the way. Uh, If you want to get back on that wagon, uh, check out our friends over at Riduzone, uh, because dieting alone is very difficult. Exercise is great, has actually broader healthcare benefits way beyond um, it, way beyond just uh, weight loss because you can't out train a bad diet. So how do you get your cravings and portion sizes back under control? Because often it's not what you're eating, but how much? That's where Riduzone comes in. All right. It's the only FDA accepted product that includes OEA. That's the naturally occurring molecule that helps you feel full faster and burns stored fat while reducing your calorie intake. And Riduzone therefore makes it easier for you to get those portion sizes and cravings under control. If you want to try it, the only place you can get Riduzone is right there on its website. Go to Riduzone.com, R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E for Riduzone.com. And you can save up to 65% off right now if you use my name, Steve, as a promo code up to 65% off with the promo code Steve and they'll even throw in free shipping. That's an incredible offer. All right. Riduzone.com. R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E. I want to go back to what I was just saying a minute ago before we go to the question you teased, Aaron, on statistics and 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 polling and modeling, because now you're in the of what one of the things I do for a living is analyzing potential outcomes. Okay. And I'm not good at the math. I'm good at poking holes in the conclusions of the math. So one of the things that I do often for, for you in this audience and for others that I've worked for is to find where is the weak spot in arguments. Where is, an, where is an argument flawed? All right, what have they not considered? That's part of what I do for data and analysis. And I've been using that here on this show for the last week and a half. 
And I used it to the full capability that I have at my disposal with the piece I have out for the blaze today that again is pinned to my Facebook page and my Twitter page, facebook.com slash Steve Dace and at Steve Dace show on Twitter. You ever wondered why when you read a national poll and you probably heard people say, well, how do you, how do you find out what everybody thinks from just 500 people? Well, they only pulled a thousand people. How do you know? Right. Why don't they do 20,000 person polls? Because there's only so, first of all, if I ask you a question, do you approve of the job Donald Trump is doing? There's really two, at the most, if you want to say unsure, there's only three possible answers, right? There's only three possible answers. If I then, and, and then how many different kinds of people are there? There's only so many Democrats. There's only so many Republicans. There's only so many independents. There's only so many people that identify as gay Republican, gay Democrat, as Christian Democrat, Christian Republican. There's only so many whites, blacks, Hispanics, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And so when you, when you go through all those various demographic combinations to come up with a representative sample, now this is assuming that the pollster wants to get an honest answer because not always, I think we all have experienced, not always do they want that. But assuming that you're looking for an honest answer, there's only so many answers to a question. And then there's only so many different types of people that could answer that question. Because you're not trying to get, and you, you don't presume that you can get the exact amount of people who either do or don't like in, in the question at hand, Donald Trump. You're presuming that you can get a pretty close approximation of it, that you can make educated guesses off of there. All right. And, and so what you're going to find is depending on the limits of the question being asked and the demographics of the people it's being asked to, that if I, if, if, if I, if my sample's really good and I only have 500, or maybe I'm not sure, so I expand it to a thousand. When I expand it to 10,000, guess what the math largely is? Almost, ex almost exactly what I had in the first thousand. I expanded to 20,000. Guess what it was? Almost exactly what I had in the first thousand. I expanded to 50,000. Guess what it was? Largely what I had in the first thousand, except there will be some margin of discrepancy the broader the sample gets, which is why it says there's a margin for error. That margin for error is where the discrepancy gets the broader the audience is. Okay. So if I want to report this poll as news, Donald Trump's favorability rating is blank and the, and the sample is a thousand Americans nationwide. Well, chances are if I extrapolate this to the whole country and which makes it more of my sample there's going to be some variance in those answers because there's always outliers, but it's going to be within that range. If I, if I, if I really wanted the right answer. Okay. And, and if I understand that some people are on cell phones and some people aren't, I mean, if I'm, if I'm an honest broker, okay. If, if, meaning if I'm, that's why I always tell you to rely on what the candidates campaigns are doing because they're paying people huge bank to give them real information. They can't afford to be wrong. They need the real stuff. And you can hire, and there are candidates who are dumb and hire pollsters who tell them what they want, not mentioning names, Dick Morris, who do, who do that, but then eventually get discredited. Because when you give a guy bad advice, when your advice to that guy all the time is, hey, you're great, keep doing what sucks, and that guy loses, that gets around and you don't get hired anymore. The campaigns are always looking on both sides. They're looking for real info because they need to know what the truth is. The media may not be, but the campaigns are. And so I don't really get more variance the broader my sample gets. But, but is it free to go call all those people and go find them? Is it free to find the people that will collect all that data? Is that free? No. No, it's a massive expense. And so therefore, if, 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 if our modeling is so good that if we, if we did 60,000, it would be the same as if we did one, why would I pay 60 times more of a cost 
to get the same answer. That's a redundancy, right? Yes. Okay. That is important in understanding the statistical modeling here. And that's something you can all understand. We cannot understand the pathology of the virus. We can understand, though, this. Germany is leading the world right now in the testing rate. And their current death rate of COVID-19 is 0.3%. Do you know what that means statistically? The more people Germany tested, what happened to the death rate? Where did it go? Down. Way down. Way down. Like, statistically insignificant. Like, if Germany knew going in that the death rate of this was 0.3%, and that's among the people infected, not the population. Steve, that's a lot of people in Germany. Not the population, the infected. If Germany knew two weeks ago that the that the infection rate of what that among its infection rate the death rate was going to be 0.3 percent would they still have shut their whole country down i don't know but the odds are certainly probably lower don't you think for sure because germany was getting reports from which country we talked about at the top of the show Italy. it's european union partner you bet okay and so that's where the statistical modeling here is important for us to look at from a public policy standpoint you saw the same thing in the united states so remember, I got mad at Fox News a week ago when they ran that 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 uh, lower third all weekend long. The first weekend of the shutdowns, twenty two hundred cases, fifty dead. Right? Okay, right. that's a, like a four percent or something kill rate. People are freaking out, and I'm like, well, what's the context of that? How many do we even know? How many? If you don't know how many people are tested, you don't know what the death rate is. You don't. You can't even do the death rate by like right now. We're we're dividing the amount of people that have died compared to the amount of people that have been confirmed. But we don't really know how many people have truly, totally been tested. So we don't have a death rate, really, a full one. So, but even with those numbers, and so what you have found every day that there's been more testing and awareness in the United States, you know what the death rate has done? Gone down. Gone down every day. So a week ago, it was like 4%. As we speak today, it's 1.18%. Why? More people are being tested. We're more aware of it. They're getting treatment faster. So looking at the example of Germany, if you hired me to analyze this, these stats for you, all right, and I'm going to look at, based on what we've seen out of Italy, do you think the United States' ability to test and document is probably closer to where Germany is at or Italy is at in terms of functionality and reliability? It better be Germany. If it's not closer it to Germany, then, we're, then, then we got far bigger problems when, than coronavirus, okay? It's probably closer to Germany's. And so I would look, at, if you hired me, I would look at the trend line. Well, the, Germany leading the way in testing. So I'm going to start with them, right? If I'm going to analyze the data, I'm going to start with them because they are leading the world in testing. That makes it tough on your virtue signaling, yes. though, Steve. So I'm going to start with them. And guess what I have found? The more they test in Germany, the more that the death rate just plummets from this to 0.3% of those infected. By comparison, last March 16th, the week of March 16th, we had a massive spike of flu and pneumonia cases in the U.S. 7.1% of everyone who had flu and pneumonia in America that week died. That's incredible because far more people are getting flu and pneumonia than are going to get COVID-19, at least from a symptomatic perspective, maybe not from an exposure. The week before we started our massive, our massive shutdowns, the, the, so the week of March 7th, this was just a couple of weeks ago, the, gov, the federal government reported 7.7% of every death in America was flu and pneumonia. Every, not just the infected now, every death, every death in America, the week of March 7th of this year, folks, 
Think of how different life was on March 7th when you woke up compared to now. Doesn't March 7th feel like it was like about, you know, 10 years ago? It's been an interesting month. Yeah, it was, it was, it was what, 16 days ago, two and a half weeks ago. And on that week, 7.7% of every death in America was from flu and pneumonia, according to the federal government. So if you're, if you're asking me to do, I'm going to look at those factors. I'm going to look at, I want to, I'm going to go right. I'm not going to look at Argentina's testing. That doesn't tell me anything. I don't know if it's reliable. I'm going to start with the most reliable data I can get because you're hiring me to make life and death, you know, broke or rich decisions. So I want the best data I can get. So I'm going to go to Germany. That's tested more people because that also gives me the highest error variance rate because the more you do, the more likely you're to run into outliers. And what Germany is finding Death rate plummets It's at 0.3% of people infected as of yesterday. What are we finding in the United States? The more we test, the more the death rate goes down. I don't know that it'll reach 0.3% in America. It may not. I mean, we, we might be as low as it is right now. It might be 1% of those infected end up dying. We don't know that. But then you have to measure that by how many people were tested. So if I, if, if it's, if I tested 10 million people, and I, and I have the same amount, 6% of those people, go back to my previous university hospital. If I test 10 million people and 6% of them come back as positive, and then 1% of them will die. That is sad. It is tragic. Does it merit shutting down an entire country, though, in light of how we've treated flu and pneumonia in the past? I would imagine almost no one within the sound of my voice would answer that question affirmatively. Now, we don't know that, though. We don't know a lot of things, but yet we're making incredibly draconian decisions that have, could have lasting, irrevocable in, in effect nonetheless. But the trend line of the things we increasingly do know is pointing in the direction of skepticism for what we've done so far. Yes, skepticism from a, da- from a policy perspective, yes. which brings us to the next question, Aaron. So Curtis Hecox says, Steve, go talk to the doctors and nurses working in the emergency rooms in any major city. This isn't overhyped or a power grab. Resisting quarantine during a pandemic is the epitome of selfishness and will lead to more death and suffering. Number one, there's just, as, as Luke Skywalker once said to Kylo Ren, amazingly, everything you just said there is wrong. I am not resisting quarantine. I have not left my home except to come to this job since last Wednesday, the day that the morning that my gym closed was the last time I left my home for anything other than my job. My kids aren't going anywhere. Um, we're, we are sanitizing our home. We are staying away from the grandparents. We are um, upping our vitamin, you know, uh, ante at the house. A week, almost two weeks ago now, Amy and I went out and bought a month's worth of groceries anticipating based on the information. The same analysis that I'm using with you right now is the same analysis that had me say to my wife, and you guys were here when I, when I, when I suggested this to you, that's the same data analysis ability that had me, after we got done with this show two weeks ago, go to my wife and say, stock up right now, they're probably going to shut everything down based on where the trend line of this is. So I'm not urging people to resist a quarantine at all. Actually, we're not officially quarantined anyway. Okay, but, but I'm not resisting it. So that part isn't true. Secondly, I, I do talk to medical professionals. Um, and, and one of them I've actually spoken to indirectly on a frequent basis. Aaron, how many times in the last two weeks 
not knowing what your answer was going to be. Have I texted you, called you, asked you mm -hmm. on the air? Hey, yep. what's belly hearing? Yep. Because Iowa Lutheran Hospital, I know it pretty well. I was born there. It's in the heart of the city. It's in one of the oldest neighborhoods in the city, surrounded by rest homes and everything else. Yep. Okay. High elderly population go there. It's one of the oldest hospitals in, and in the city as well. So, I mean, this is not, I mean, she's on the ground. So I'm consulting those kinds of people all of the time. And I, I would urge you at the very least until the 15 days are up to take all of the medical precautions necessary. All of them, especially if you want this to be over and to get back into real life. Because the sooner we take those precautions, the less communicable we are and the, and the faster we can get back to real life, right? Similar to what I said last hour about you lose nothing by being skeptical because we can't stop the, the virus if it's as apocalyptic as, as some claim. We can't stop it anyway, right? So there's only a benefit from being skeptical. There's only a benefit right now from obeying the safety precautions and, and because there's nowhere to go anyway. There's nothing to do anyway. You're not missing out on the latest Marvel movie. There aren't any theaters open. You're not missing out on March Madness. They're not playing the games. There's, 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 there's no point in, in, <laughs> in disobeying it anyway. So, and, and hey, if you disinfect your home a few times and, give, and have your kids eat healthier and give them more vitamins, what is the downside exactly of that? Is there a downside of that? No. None. Okay, so th there's just nothing in your note that's true. It's all emotion. It's all panic, my friend. And I would, I would urge you, get a grip. Take a deep breath. All right? You know, uh, people pledge their lives, fortunes, and sacred honors 240 years ago to give folks like you the ability to run their own country and govern themselves on the presumption that you can handle it. And right now, based on that email, I got to tell you, just friend to friend, I'm kind of doubting that you can. Any other questions? Let's see. We can maybe do one more. This is from Corey Beamer, who uh, says, and I just lost the question. Basically, I'll sum it up by saying, what would you have done differently? What would you do starting right now? You mean if I were the president or yeah. advising him? Yeah. We would have closed the borders right away. Right away. Uh, the Mexican border that was closed on Friday, that, would have been, that should have been like one of the first things. And it has to stay closed. Do you trust the medical infrastructure? And because Central America's port to America is a Mexico. Do you, do you trust all those countries' medical yeah. infrastructures? No, you should not. Okay. So I'd have closed the borders all right away. I'd have shut down all international travel right away. Right away. I'd have sealed the country right away. The first time I heard about what was going on over there, especially based off of what we originally were hearing was happening in Italy when they were blowing it way out of proportion, like we talked about in the opening hour, I definitely would have done it then. I, I mean, I just, I just shut all the borders down, everything right away. That's the first thing that I would have done to make, because here's why the other thing too, if I'm making public policy decisions, I got to know what the, what my own people, my own constituency, what their health is, what their status is. And if I'm letting all these other people in, I don't know that. I can't make real decisions based on, on the behaviors of non-citizens that are for the benefit of the actual citizens. Great question. Thanks for tuning in here today. More tomorrow, including an overtime actually later today. Until then, John 317. This is Steve Dace on the Blaze Radio Network.